Your Bible, a custom designed two year Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, the executive director. Hey, everybody. And so this week, we are starting the book of Exodus. Woo-hoo. Whether you are excited about that or not, I don't know. But um, for today, we've got a chunk of stuff to talk about because these first nine chapters are uh, a doozy in many ways. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, when you think about the context, you know, Genesis, those first 50 chapters are the Israelite people who were set free hearing almost, it's almost like the preface to the book. It's like I mean, the origin really story. Yeah. yeah. But now we're getting into the story, like the real life story of what happened to them. Yeah. And so um, how how they got there, it's the title of the book is sort of like exit. It's like, how, how do we get here? How how did we end up back in this land? And um and what happened in Egypt and how do we, how did that all go down? And so um, you, you're going to spend 15 chapters going through that part. And then the the back end of the book of 16 to 40 kind of at Sinai and the experience of getting the law and understanding the tabernacle and um, something's not going well in that process too. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot in this book. Watch the Bible project. It'll break it down for you. Uh, we'll include a link in the show notes, uh, kind of give you a, a little bit of a higher view of the book and how it lays itself out, um, what some major themes are as well, which are, are really important uh, for you to understand as you read through. You start noticing certain sections. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So we have we start out with Israel increasing greatly in Egypt. It's been about 400 years, and they have multiplied. So where we left off is there were about 70 of them in Joseph's time. And there's a whole lot. Yeah, now we know. We'll find out later that there's about 600,000. Yeah, yeah, they have been fruitful and multiplied. They have multiplied, yeah. Um, so, which should feel like a callback to Genesis 1. Uh, I think I think this opening like paragraph is Genesis 1 and the very end of Genesis all played out in one of, mm-hmm. hey, this is a continuation of the end of Genesis. And not only that, but this is the people fulfilling what was told in Genesis 1, that they right. were being fruitful. And yeah, multiplied. and God keeping fulfilling his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Yep, and they're doing it. Um, but they're doing it here in Egypt, which yeah, is causing a problem. Yeah, Pharaoh is not thrilled. No. He doesn't remember Joseph. No, and Pharaoh. And he is threatened. And he is, the, 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 the narrator is definitely setting Pharaoh up as like the anti-character right away of going, look, God, God's blessing the people and they're multiplying. And, and, it, and Pharaoh's setting out to stop, to thwart uh, God's blessing, to be the anti-God in the story. Um, so his method is gender side, genocide yeah. via gender side. Yeah. Yeah. You, if you take out all the males of a population, particularly the firstborn, um, that would also lead all the females now to have to find um, um, homes, you know, particularly amongst uh, the Egyptians. So uh, there's a way to sort of get rid of a people. It would be this. And so. This is what he's attempting to do, um, and and it's it's problematic. It doesn't work um, as as well as Pharaoh would like because guess what? There's some faithful people mm-hmm. uh, left behind, and it's interesting because um, throughout the whole story, we have an unnamed Pharaoh. There's all sorts of guesses of who this exactly is, um, and as and as we read through this book, I hope I hope we take movies out of our mind as best yes. we can. Um, because there's there's so many ways where it's like oh I always imagine it like that but that doesn't seem to be right so like even the Prince of Egypt like this is Ramses and stuff like that and that's a guess of who this might be but he's not named and I think he's not named for a reason and and then the surprising twist is like 
who do, who do we find named pretty early these these midwives? The two midwives, Shipra like, and yeah, Pua. Yeah, the narrator clearly wants to identify them and has no interest in identifying what kind of pharaoh this is. But I think that also plays into like, look, the 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 things that hold us in slavery. Yes, there was a pharaoh, but there's other pharaohs. There's 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 other ways that the Israelites will end up in slavery, and this narrative becomes repetitive for them. Um, that there's a new pharaoh in Rome, or there's a new pharaoh with the Greeks. There's a new pharaoh with the Assyrians. So. Um, I think that that plays out in, in really important ways. Yeah. So the the first deliverance we see in Exodus is the boys being delivered from death because of the intervention of these midwives. Yeah. Um, so this is going to beg some questions, though. They were not entirely honest with Pharaoh. So I don't know, Chris, what do you think? Did God bless them for lying? Yeah, what does it's, this mean it's, for us? it's difficult. I think sometimes the question of like how appropriate is their lying is, is sometimes a question. There's a little bit of a question out of, out of position and privilege and power. Um, so if you are a people who are clearly being oppressed and are being asked to do unethical things in the process, um, you have to make a, a judgment call. And I, I don't think it's a wrong one by them um, to, to go, Okay, like the 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 powers that be are asking us to do an unethical thing. How do we get out of this um, in a way that that preserves life, the the greater good of preserving life? And so, I mean, I think the same thing of mm-hmm. of to try to bring it into modern day. And maybe you have a more modern day analogy than the 1940s. But like, if you were a Christian in Nazi Germany and you decide to harbor Jews in your basement or something like that. And the SS comes knocking at your door and says, "Hey, are there any Jews in your house?" Well, you have a judgment call: do I do I work to preserve life, knowing that these Jews will probably be killed by the Nazis, or do I say a lie? Uh, to, to, to like, uh, do do I let them know that that the, the 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 Jews are in the basement, or do I do I tell a lie to preserve life? And and I I would argue Scripture has these moments, and and like there's other stories like First uh, Samuel 16 where it's that one even God says, "Hey." don't tell the whole truth to Samuel, which is super interesting. Um, and so I think there's these moments where, where that just plays out and, and, and we'll see it again in scripture. This isn't the only time, um, where it's like, all right, you didn't quite tell the truth. Um, or you just straight up lied, but your lie saved thousands of lives. So, um, yeah, right. It's complicated. All right. So Moses is born. Yep. Moses is born. Moses is clearly identified as a Levite, which will play out much later in the book, but um, important to know right from the get-go. Um, and it's interesting. He's put in a basket, but the word for the basket is ark. Um, it's teva. It's, it, it means ark uh, as well. So it, it really barely exists other in scripture other than the Noah story and the Moses story. And so Moses is delivered through this watery death that he should deserve uh, as the firstborn, but he gets delivered out of it. And out of that, he creates like a new beginning for God's people. Like his salvation brings the a new beginning for God's people, which gosh, it's such a callback. And it, I think it's mm-hmm. supposed to be a callback to Noah. I think it will be continued. The Red Sea kind of feels a similar thing. The Jordan River and Joshua, uh, Jesus and his baptism. There's a whole new creation that comes through these waters, um, which we get in Genesis 1. And I think that's always a callback to Genesis 1 of creation out of the deep, the, the chaotic deep and life and creation coming out of that. Yeah. And so, how does she know she's, he's a Hebrew? I don't know. Was he circumcised? We'll get into a conversation on that in a little bit. Was it a blanket that might have been an Israelite cloth? Who knows? Um, 
and, and everything's conjecture, but um, he grows up in, in Pharaoh's house uh, out of this basket. He gets rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, grows up in the house, um, gets a name that has Hebrew significance, but was likely an Egyptian name too. Um, so um, it's super interesting. And it has some overtones with some other legends uh, around that time. Um, if you really want to dive in to find out about that, you can Google that. Um, but uh, the Moses story is um, a, 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 this really important origin of the leader of the Israelites. Yeah. Uh, so then Moses grows up, and here's one of our first indications that he doesn't quite sure who he's part of. Mm-hmm. He doesn't feel fully part of Pharaoh's household because he sees a Hebrew being treated unfairly, and Moses steps in and intervenes and tries to bring about justice. Yeah, um, but, but he does it. He does yeah, it the force. Hebrews weren't thrilled. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, he the, flees to Midian. Well, and, and it's great. He goes out the very next day, and what happens? These these two uh, Israelites are like, "Are you going to do it to us too?" Like, it's even going to set this motif of like the Israelites grumbling about this Moses, who they don't totally seem to trust, which is understandable. He has spent forty years now in Pharaoh's house, the the home, the the the, the power structure that has enslaved all these people. Right. This is where Moses comes from. Even if they might know that he's an Israelite, this is where he comes from. So uh, it's a real struggle for them. Yeah. So he flees to Midian, which is the Ishmaelites. Yeah, yeah. Uh, descendants from Ishmael. And he steps in and, and has another opportunity for justice. He helps Jethro's daughters. They think he's an Egyptian, actually. Which yeah, is something about his appearance, whatever it is, something about him identifies him as an Egyptian to them. Yeah. Um, or maybe he's famous because he's in Pharaoh's household. Who knows? Yeah, but it's kind of interesting thinking. I, I think we'll hear some more um, Ishmael connections, but Moses flees Pharaoh because uh, Pharaoh's going to kill him, and he sits down by a well. And it makes me think of... Um, Hagar and Ishmael. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of Genesis callbacks. And then he meets his wife, Maya Well, which should sound a little bit familiar. Um, right. Yeah, there's a lot of these callbacks uh, to Genesis, which I think the author is very intentional about. Um, but then in Exodus uh, 2, 23 to 25, we get some of the the most important language, I would argue, in the whole book. Absolutely. Um, which is sort of the why. Why does God do something? Why does God finally respond in the moment why what was happening and and yeah why does god deliver these people because god hears their cry god remembers his covenant god saw the sons and god knew them um you get this uh, this this continued statement of of god did this like hear the the verbs tied into god and it's god remembering his promise to abraham Isaac, and jacob god recognizing their cry which sort of seemed uh, nondescript it was like they cried out that they were suffering. And so God hears that cry, um, right. remembers his covenant with his people and does something about it. And keep in mind in Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, like, I have to wait to fulfill the, um, the sin and the judgment of the Amorites, Amalekites, somebody in Genesis 15. <laughs> and so Abraham knew that it would be 400 years and it's been 400 years. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is, this is the time and God is now moving and responding um, yeah. So here, the first two chapters of Exodus, we kind of see setting the stage. It's giving us context and background to God's plan to deliver his people. Yeah. Now we know it's how like, we ended up here. It's like good storytelling. Like yeah. we, we've introduced a few main characters and we've created the conflict. And so right. what's going to happen now? Yeah. Um, and we get God 
a burning bush is yeah of course why wouldn't you introduce yourself as a burning bush um that doesn't consume things but it clearly caught moses's attention and um he steps in and um we see even uh, if you listen to our last podcast the question of uh how do we approach god and and there's a little bit of that confusion for moses too he's like he's covering his face but he hasn't taken off his shoes god has to tell him to do that and so um but god God is a holy God, and, mm-hmm. and in His presence, there's there's an area of fear and respect and honor and a little bit of overwhelmingness um, that that is part of coming to God, seeing God, interacting with God. Yeah, um, I mean, really, you think about Genesis. There's not a ton we learn about God. Uh, there's not a lot of language around Him. We know He's faithful. We know He keeps His promises. We know He hears and He sees. But here, we learn that God reveals Himself in fire. He's holy. Yeah. He remembers His covenant promise. And He suddenly cares about a name. He, he didn't seem yeah. to be that concerned about His name in the Old in Genesis. He He's fine with the various names that people come up for Him. Uh, yeah. But here, it's like, okay, uh, here is my name. This is what I want you to know me as. Um, so um, God says, I'm going to lead my people out. But then... Um, I'm sure Moses is like, cool, I'm glad you're going to do that. And then he's like, but Moses, I'm going to send you to go talk to Pharaoh, Um, which to Moses was probably like, "Um, who am I? Um, Which is a legitimate question. It's like, you're, you're appearing as a burning bush. Can you're God? Can't you just go? Or like what Mm -hmm. I've been gone for 40 years. Uh, Last time I was there, everyone seemed to hate me. Are you sure you, who, who am I to go do that? Um, and Moses makes various attempts to get out of this in the next two chapters. Um, yeah, which I mean, that should give us heart because Moses is, you know, one of our real heroes of the faith. And he's somebody who makes a lot fewer mistakes than a lot of the other leaders in scripture that we see. And yet he starts out here arguing with God, not wanting to obey. And we see him accusing God later, like, and God chose him before when he was a baby, before he had even done anything, God had chosen him to fulfill his purpose of drawing Israel out of slavery. So remember for us that the same is true of us. We don't earn something with our behavior. Uh, We don't earn God's favor, but it's given to us because God has, has chosen us and he gave us his son. We yeah. Favor through that. Yeah. If it's not clear already, the the people God chooses have some deep flaws, mm-hmm. and um, which is good news. That that is the good news of the God of the universe is that He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and and He's willing to work through people like Moses and people like Sarah and myself and all of you listening. That 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 God's graciousness is wider as far as the east is from the west like he will deal with our struggles and our sin um and And we see over and over and over again even with like the characters that we don't like um they still have opportunities to repent Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um and so and and uh i'll probably include this in the show notes in exodus two through four all these chapters uh, might be this one big chiasm and i'll 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 lay out how i think it plays out and right in the middle is god introducing his name uh, which i think is really really cool um and so he says i am there's all sorts of thoughts on this but probably um i have always been like the eternality of god's probably at play here but possibly his presence because he does tell hey i'll be with you therefore my name is i am in some ways there's a tie in there um but um he introduces himself to this name which is the language we use for yahweh if you've heard that word uh, that's the hebrew or yeah it's it's, Jehovah. it's the tetragrammaton the, this, these four letters that um uh, eventually the the israel uh the jewish people thought the name was so holy that they really couldn't say it and then they started taking vowels and sounds out of it um and so people have 
tried to put vowels back in. So Yahweh is what our best guess of what it actually should sound like. Uh, but even that is a guess because of so much that's been lost. But um, yeah. It's a personal name for God. This mm-hmm. is the first time we get a personal name for God. So we get descriptions of God before and up until now, they've spoken of him as uh, God, G-O-D, which is El or Elohim. And that's kind of... Yeah. The all-encompassing, ultimate, like descriptive yeah, name like for any kind of watching guy. a celebrity on TV say, "I thank God for this gift," and like they, they, they're not talking about Jesus; they're just they're whatever, just, whatever yeah. God's in heaven. That's what I'm talking about. And so, um, the same so sort of name, personal, yeah. yeah. And Yahweh is definitely it's like invoking the name of Jesus. It's like a, a personal, specific name for the people. Um, and when, when you're reading along in your New Testament or the Old Testament. Um, and you get to a capital L, then three other capital ORDs that are slightly smaller usually. Um, that is Yahweh in the text. It is um, different than L, uh, regular capital L in the lowercase ORD. Um, which, is which is Adonai, is Adon which means Adonai. like yeah. sovereign um, one. And so, um, yeah, so this Yahweh introduction is important, um, a pretty important turning point. And as you read it, to note sometimes when it's using Yahweh and when it's using other names for God. So, um, he basically says, uh, God says that you're going to have to go and, and do these plagues and to convince Pharaoh to let uh, the people go. Um, and that they're even going to be so beat up by the end of this, that, um, your women are going to plunder, uh, Egypt, which is so interesting. It's like, not your warriors, not your, not your strong men. Like it, Egypt's going to be so in wreck after this whole process that you, your women will go next door and take what they need. And so, um, which is interesting. Yeah, so Moses is giving these signs to show to Pharaoh. The first one is a sign of a serpent, which is a symbol of Egyptian power. And so he's coming directly against the authority and power of Egypt and Pharaoh himself. Yeah, if you've seen like a picture of a of a of a Pharaoh, like they have these like headdresses that are meant to look a little bit like a cobra. Um, and, and so this picture of the King being associated with the snake and stuff like that was always a symbol of power as well as a staff. Most pictures, uh, in like hieroglyphics will have the King with like a, a, a hooked staff. And, um, mm-hmm. and so there's playing with snakes and staffs, which Moses says would have been this like beat up shepherd staff versus Pharaoh's like, golden power staff and so there's this interesting play between mm-hmm. the two and um and, and so as you visually think through these stories think through that like moses would throw down this like junky old wooden staff they would have walked with sheep with and pharaoh would throw down or his his court would throw down certain their kind of staffs which are fancy and and, and probably include gems and stuff like that and so it's it's really interesting um but Pharaoh continues, or Moses continues to uh, object. <laughs> I'm not eloquent, and 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 God being like, look, I made your mouth. I, I will put my words in your mouth. You're fine, Moses. I will be with you. Like this is a constant theme of of God going, no, you're not getting it. This is not about you. Um, which is really the turning point after chapter two. God stepping in and being like, I'm going to do all this. Just trust me. Just go with me. I'm. I'll be with you. Which is also a theme throughout the book. Um, because Moses later on would be like, no, I'm not going to go unless you're going to go with us. Um, but because saying, I will be with you uh, in this process. And then eventually by the last one, uh, uh, Moses is finally like, uh, Lord, please, please just send someone else. <laughs> and God gets like a little mad at that point. Yeah, at that point. And like, it's not even like a reasonable objection. Moses is just straight up saying, I don't want to do this. Um, please send someone else. Um, and God gets angry and eventually appoints Aaron. And it almost feels like a little bit of a concession mm-hmm. um, as if uh, Moses would have been 
the mouthpiece, the leader, like the, the, the one sort of man that's sort of king and priest and stuff like that. And, and he blows it. And at some point God sort of has concession of going, okay, we're going to bring Aaron in, which gets into a whole nother conversation around Aaron and his line and Melchizedek and Hebrews. And we'll deal with that. when we get to the book of Hebrews. Um, and so Moses, um, is told to wait for Aaron and, um, so he goes to Midian. And so oh. when he instead of waiting for Aaron, he goes to Midian and he tells um, a little white lie and to it's like, his hey, father. Yeah, hey Jethro, I gotta go back and check on my brothers. Um and so it's it's so it's such a peculiar storytelling at this point of the book. Um and then uh Moses reminds him. And and maybe Moses is here because he is like scared. It's like, hey, if I go back, there's people that want to kill me there. And and God has to go to him in Midian now and say, No, Moses go to Egypt and then they start heading on their way. And then there's this whole totally weird story thrown in there. But before that, we hear God say, Israel is my first oh, yeah. son, yeah. which is of critical significance. Yeah. A huge significance because um, you've seen the killing of the firstborn uh, uh, by Pharaoh. Um, we're going to see by the 10th plague, a bit of a reversal of that or a response to that. But then God identifying the whole people it's like you are my firstborn so when you attack my people like you are attacking my firstborn and so therefore i will i will respond to yours um mm-hmm. in the story and then as i said this totally weird story that involves circumcision of a child and touching the feet of moses and <laughs> yeah so so we don't know entirely what this means but nope. we have some guesses and i think the first place to start is the purpose of the covenant of circumcision that we talked about in Genesis 17 is a sign of God's plan to multiply greatly his people and to make Abraham a father of nations and to give him a promised land. And it specifically said that the uncircumcised male should be cut off from his people for breaking the covenant. So there's just a question of, whether Moses was circumcised, whether he was circumcised the right way because Egyptians had their own practice of circumcision and whether this story ties in there. There's a whole lot of ways I would unpack that and, and it's just not probably worth it for the sake of this, but, um, that, yeah, this, this Zipporah who, if she's a Midianite would have been in the line of Abraham just through Ishmael. And so is she performing circumcision as it should be and almost taking the role of kind of what the future priests will do. Um, but, um, making sure that a, that Moses who is about to represent the covenant people has the proper sign of the covenant or and some is representation coming under the covenant promise of right. God. Yep. And so I think it's tied into that, but as we said, there's a whole lot of scholarship that disagrees yeah. on this. So then Israel uh, bows their heads in worship and remember mm-hmm. this cause we won't see this again for a little <laughs> while. It gets kind of tough for Israel. Yeah. Israel gets it now, but they may not always. Yeah. Um, and, Moses goes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's like, uh, who's Yahweh? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I know my gods, my Egyptian gods, uh, him himself would have been deified as, uh, as, uh, Horus incarnate. Um, but, um, he's like, who's Yahweh? I don't, he's not part of the pantheon here. Like who, who is this guy? Um, and, and then he makes it a lot harder for the Israelites. Uh, he takes straw out of the brick making. And I'll include an image. There's a whole image of like um, how they made bricks that was in ancient Egypt, which is super interesting. Yeah. And this chapter ends kind of sadly. The Israelites are upset. Moses gets mad and starts accusing God of doing evil to Israel. It's, it's not looking great. Moses used the signs and it didn't help. Yeah. And, and so um, God promises deliverance again. 
uh, I am the Lord. Uh, I came from Abraham. I'm the, I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and, and, and so there's, there's a continuation of, of God promising, I, I'm doing this. I have heard. I have remembered. I'm going to do this. Um, and so we then randomly get a genealogy mm-hmm. <laughs> thrown in there, uh, which – I think it's for future audiences to hear. Understanding the yeah. priesthood with the it's Levites. Like, oh, it's right, really important. Family lines, where you come from, what what tribe you're a part of. Those are really, really important. So they're just clarifying, I think, some of this. Um, and then... Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh again. Yep. They throw down their staffs uh, and they turn into snakes. Um, and, uh, and, they, and they eat the other staffs, which is super interesting. So the staff eats the staff, not the snake eats the snake. And, um, and, but it's absolutely a sign to these people of like, look, the authority here is Moses and Aaron's side, not on Pharaoh's side. Um, yeah. And then we get the first plague. Um, yeah. So we see three cycles of plagues here. And we know that there's a new cycle because it talks about in the morning, go to Pharaoh in the morning. Um, and some traditions, I guess, believe that Pharaoh would go stand out in the morning and cause the sun to rise. Um, so anyway, yeah, the first one is turning the water of the Nile River into blood. Uh, yeah. This is coming directly against the Egyptian god of the Nile. Yep. Um, Which probably Osiris, but happy is also an option. And there, there's a few options here. Mm-hmm. Uh, go ahead. Go for it. All right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Egypt exists because the Nile because is where it Nile. is. Like, it's it's water, it's life, it's how crops grow, it's how anything survives. And so, um, this is a shot right at the very heart of Egypt, right from the get go. Um, it's and and in some ways, maybe even God saying, "You want blood? I'll give you blood." Like, you wanted to kill the children in the water, yeah. I, I will show you blood in the water. And so, yeah, and um, exposing that to them. Now, there's a thing about the hardening of the heart. Um, that I think is probably at play here. Um, the Egyptian god Anubis, who's over the underworld, in order to determine and to make a judgment of of who is worthy and who is not, um, would weigh the heart of the person who has died against the feather of Ma'at, which is like uh, the feather of truth. And if it was heavy, it, if it um, weighed down the scale, um, and I'll, I'll include a picture of the scales too. If it weighed down the scale, um, it was a picture that that heart was sinful and, and, and awful and evil and wicked. And if it was light, if it uh, was lighter than a feather, then then that heart was pure and that person deser- is deserving of all the blessings of eternal life. And, and so um, the word for hardened, um, um, m- more often than not, there's a few different words you use, but is, is, is the word heavy? Um, we read it as hardened, but, but it also reads as heavy. And I wonder if what's at play here is, is God saying, all right, this is, this is the judgment moment for Pharaoh. And it's not Osiris who's, or Anubis that's doing it, it's Yahweh. And, and, and Pharaoh's proving time and time again to have a heavy heart. He is evil. He is wicked. And so for the Israelites who understand that, and for even the Egyptians who understand that, are seeing that picture in the storytelling of like, Pharaoh is is deserving of judgment huh, in, in, mm-hmm. in his actions and what he's doing. Um, and But it's Yahweh who is the judge, not not Anubis. Yeah. And think too about these plagues. What we're going to see here is almost a decreation story. And it starts with the water. It's no longer filled with living creatures or anything like that. And it's going to progress to darkness, yep. which we'll see in the ninth plague and then death. But um, there's more to that. But think about a decreation here. Yep. And then frogs, a bunch yeah. of frogs everywhere, um, which is is 
yeah, another tie into another god. The goddess um, of fertility. Yep. Yeah, and you couldn't even step on them, otherwise punishment to death, and they're everywhere. So what do you do? Um, but then there's an interesting thing where they're like, "Hey, um, uh, we could take the frogs away," and Mo- Pharaoh goes, "Okay, tomorrow." It's like tomorrow, not right now. What, what about right now? Tomorrow? And okay. and um, I wonder if if Pharaoh like they're you. I mean, natural disasters are not totally uncommon, and infestations may may be at the whim of the gods, and 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 the gods are in battle all the time. So who knows why some of these things may happen? But if Yahweh is really the supreme God, he should have precision. He should have exactness. He has control over things. And so I think I think Pharaoh is here going, let's see if your God can do that. Right. Like, if, if you really have this relationship with your God, he's not just on a whim doing these things, then tomorrow make that happen, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. Yeah, and then in the third plague, we see the gnats coming out. And so now, first we had something happening with the Nile, and then we had something with all the water, and now mm-hmm. we see it coming out of the dust. And again, it's coming against the Egyptian god of the earth. Um, yeah. God is more powerful than him as well. And the magicians can't make it happen mm-hmm. here. Um, and then the fourth plague, these flies that are likely these kind of biting insects, uh, they come as well, which is another god altogether. Um and I love that Pharaoh here is like, um, well, can't you just worship here? <laughs> can't you just figure out here? And, and Moses is like, well, no, however we're going to worship, it's going to be offensive to you for some reason. And then he's like, okay, well, you can leave, but just don't go very far. And so, um, but Pharaoh hardens his heart again. Yeah. Fifth plague is livestock. Yeah. That comes against the goddess of love and protection. She had the head of a cow or yep. a bull. Yep. So again, it's one by one by one. We're seeing that our God is more powerful and sovereign over all these things you worship. Oh yeah. It's definitely a, a battle of Yahweh versus the Egyptian gods, Moses versus Pharaoh. These sort of play out of these pictures. The sixth player boils. Um, I think the, the little ash thing here is interesting. This either might be ashes from from um, the way they make bricks, or I think more likely um, Imhotep, who um, is like a god over um, health and, and wellness. So like boils would be the opposite of that. Um, they would sometimes offer a human sacrifice, and with those ashes, they would spread the ashes of that person to 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 provide healing. And so I wonder if there's a little bit of a judgment of look, your human sacrifices that you think bring healing. This is, this is judgment um, Mm. in in boils. Yeah. This is the first plague we see that is affecting the physical body. And it's interesting here. They point out that the magicians can't come anymore. So now it's Moses and Aaron are the only ones standing before Pharaoh because, because the magicians have the boils too. Yep. Um, And then hail comes on the scene. So. Yeah, we start the third cycle of plagues. Yeah, and it takes out the the flax, which is really their main fiber for clothing. So um, most of their food is gone. Their water source has turned into blood. Uh, their clothing is being destroyed here. Like all the necessities of life are being attacked for the Egyptians. While in Israel and down in Goshen, it seems like everything's all right or for the Israelites. Yeah, <laughs> and I think for us, there's two things to remember. First of all, is that we are still dependent on on God for our provision of food and water and clothing. And even though we grow it and provide it and, you know, um, it's still God who causes the rain to fall and the earth to produce. And I think the other thing is sometimes you may like start to roll your eyes at Pharaoh and be like, why do you keep changing your mind? And they say they can go. And then he changes his mind. And how often do we claim to repent of sin and our behaviors? We promise to obey God and then things get easy and we fall back into our own patterns again. Sorry to say we're more like, 
probably like Pharaoh in this story yeah. than Moses. And even Moses is painted that way a little bit at times yeah. where it's like, hey, um, I thought you were you wanted me to go here and tell Pharaoh. But since I got here, everybody's been suffering that much more because I showed up and now they're making bricks without straw. Like, God, why did you do this to us? And so Moses even has that sort of back and forth, just maybe not the extreme of, of Pharaoh. Yeah. Obedience is not easy. All right. New Testament. We're 30 minutes in and we got some work to do still. Luke 13. The parable of the barren fig tree. And um, I would argue that this is picking up from last week. We had yeah. this whole conversation about repenting and, 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 and do it now. Like there's, there's time. And, and this, this thing of Israel, I would argue is, is, is here uh, in some ways represented by this fig tree and, and um, maybe this, this time with Jeremiah eight. Um, but um, the, 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 the teaching thing here though, is that, all right, we're, we're going, we're going to ask for a little bit more time that there's a little bit more time here, uh, for the people like judgment's not quite here yet. Repent. Like there's, there's one more chance. There's one more moment. There's, there's a little bit more time. So repent now, do it now. Um, yeah, it makes you think of second Peter three, nine, God is not slow. Uh, some people would see slowness, but he is, you know, willing or desiring that all would repent. Yeah. Um, he doesn't want anyone to perish. And so we see delaying judgment in Genesis and Exodus, and we see it here. Yeah. God's, God's timing, you either like it or don't like it, depending on what side of yeah. <laughs> the situation you're on. You exactly. either want it to move faster or slower, um, just depending on your, your perspective. And so, right. uh, but luckily he has a better perspective than any of us do. Yeah. So then we move into a Sabbath healing. Yeah. We're going to see a couple of these today. Yeah. There's, there's a debate amongst the rabbis of, of, of what, how, what does work look like on the Sabbath? And one of the, like I talked about, there's frameworks and one of the, the frameworks that they have is, is around, if a donkey's in, in a ditch or an ox is in a ditch, like what do you do about that? And um, is getting them out work? And ultimately, both rabbis would say, yes, ultimately getting them out um, is the right thing um, for different reasons. And so Jesus comes along and he's like, wait a minute. Like you've talked about this ox donkey thing, but this is a human being. Can I, can I not save or provide healing for a human being if you think an ox can get saved on uh, a Sabbath? So um, yeah, I, I think he's just, one upping their definition of what can we do on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. um, and then the mustard seed and leaven. Um, so um, this is about the kingdom of God. This is very much a kingdom of God uh, parable, which many of them are. Uh, but I think there's such a hearkening back to Ezekiel 17 here, um, which in Ezekiel, God kind of plants um, a, a shoot and ultimately grows into a large tree. And, and these birds rest. The birds are a symbolism of the nations come and find rest and, 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 and shade under um, that. This parable is, is I, I would argue, absolutely a callback to that. The kingdom of God. Yes, it's going to start small. It's going to be a Right. this ragtag crew, but it will continue to grow and provide shade to the yeah, Gentiles. Yeah, and you know, thinking back to what we read last week, like they didn't realize anything that was happening. And these are kind of both unnoticed things. You plant a seed and suddenly you have a tree or you mix in some leaven and suddenly you have all this bread. That's yeah. what's happening. Yeah, and it's always something small. Leavening certainly is something small, but it grows. And and I would argue the next story with the flower, it might be a callback to, to Sarah and Abraham when the visitors come in, in Genesis 18 and, and they provide care for the sojourners, these outsiders. And and in so doing, bless bless these others uh, by providing three measures of flour and some uh, yeast. And so um, I think that will make sense even with the next story, the narrow yeah. door where we, we are told that there is a narrow way. There's a specific, a small way that not everyone chooses, but the end part of that whole section includes people coming from the North, the South, the East, the West. There's, there's a picture of, of 
and, and that would have been a symbol of the Gentiles, not just right. the Jews the from those yeah. from from there, but but that they would come uh, and, and be there. And so, um, I think that's what's at hand in these teachings of 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 the blessing of the nations, and and that that's part of the narrow way. Like you you, if you know what God's about, you know that this is what He is after. That. Um, and repentance and faith, which we know through looking at other parts of Luke and other parts of Scripture, the narrow mm-hmm. door is repentance and faith. There's yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a question of saved. salvation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Luke makes that explicit. This is a salvific conversation. Yeah. Um, and I think we'll get to the weeping and gnashing of teeth stuff later on in Luke and Luke 16 when we get to that part. Yep. And there's a lament. Jesus kind of laments over Jerusalem here. He's he's sad over the state of the city. Um and that they aren't listening, they aren't grasping, they have not done um, and connected um, with with who he is, of, of what he's come to do. Um, and they will not see him until Palm Sunday, basically, until blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which they would all go on and chant Yeah, on Palm this is Sunday. his fourth announcement of his death. Yep. Then we get a Sabbath story. should sound very similar to the previous one. I think it's the same application point. Apparently, there was a large debate around the Sabbath at the time that Luke includes this multiple times. Um, And then there's a wedding feast uh, and the great banquet, these two parables back to back, which I think are super fascinating. Um, And in both, there's there's some overlay of themes, but some different themes that – there's honor and shame, which we'll we'll have to deal with on another podcast, but – this this picture of humility that God clearly is after humble people in the storyline that it's not about greatness it's not about power it's not about position what God desires is a humble person like we see that even in the Old Testament it's like God's searching the earth for the humble heart right. um, and, and that's what that's what we see that who, who are the ones who say look I'm nobody unless unless God Jesus is the one who gives me position and title um, which we get Jesus is the one who can raise someone from a seat of dishonor to a seat of honor yeah and this is a reminder to the disciples who not too long ago were arguing about who's the greatest yep and then it moves into this parable of the great banquet yeah where we see specifically the people who are invited to the celebration and this wedding are the crippled the lame and the blind and the poor yeah yeah saying these are have, the exalted a, ones yeah if you have a banquet invite those people the people you that can't repay you um and then there's a little bit of a uh, imagery there uh, sometimes it's like ah oh, i just want to be here for this moment because it seems like there's suddenly like a moment of silence and then somebody just breaks in like blesses everyone who will eat in the kingdom of god and so it's like <laughs> oh i just wanted to break up the silence it was really awkward there for a second and then jesus goes on to teach um look that we invited these people and they didn't come these people and they had an excuse and this person had an excuse and so i don't know if that that was about israel the prophets came, they said, and people didn't listen. And so now we are, Jesus is opening the floodgates of everyone to be invited, like people off the street, like this is Gentiles and everybody coming into this banquet party. Um, but it's still a question of like, who, also, who do you invite? Like there's a practical application to that of like, God's party is going to include all sorts of people. And that includes broken, hurting, messy, people that don't look like you, people that don't talk like you, people that value things differently than you. People you that okay? vote differently yeah. than you. Yeah. Are you okay at that banquet? Um, how's that going to go for you? Yeah. Um, Do you want to be there? Yeah. Um, Which leads to the next question, the cost of discipleship. Yeah. Is, so, is it so worth it So think about you? it. Yeah. Uh, have you counted the cost of what that's going to mean and what that's going to look like? Like you don't go to war without thinking about it. You don't build things without thinking about that. Uh, have you thought about what this is going to cost you? Yeah. As we share the gospel too, as a believer in Christ, we are to share the gospel. Don't just try to 
check off a box or get someone to repeat a prayer after you, make sure that you're clear and thorough about what it means to follow Jesus because otherwise we'll end up at the parable of the sower where the seed falls down and someone says, yeah, I want to be a Christian. And then they realize how hard it is and they want out. But when we're clear about what it looks like to follow Jesus and understanding that it is salvation, it is worth it, but it's also really hard, uh, then people can count the cost of what it looks like yeah. to follow him. Yeah, it's you will have to re, I mean, Luke's made this clear. You will have to reorient everything in your life to follow Jesus. Do you want that? And um, it, with a truth that he's worth it. Yes. But um, have you thought about it? Or is it just when it's convenient? Because there's no place for that in Jesus' kingdom. Um, and then salt without taste is worthless. This is the whole analogy of salt uh, in and salt that doesn't do what it's supposed to do it was it, you it's not even worth throwing on even even poop even a pile of manure uh it like it, it would ruin that too and so um are, are you ready to be fertilizer are you ready to be salt are you ready to to, to be the salt of the earth the people who drive back spoilage and, and to help things flourish are you ready to be that and if you're ready to be that great let's go um and so otherwise if you're gonna lose your saltiness there's no place for you and so, um, I think that's what Jesus is really trying to make clear. Psalm 35. The last half of it. So we'll read the first half yep. of it later. This yep. is an imprecatory psalm. And um, what that means in simple language is that it's basically a prayer of cursing. And that can be kind of difficult for us to interpret now. We don't suggest you pray curses over people. Uh, but we Depending on where you're at today. Yeah. Like you, you may have read that on a really bad day and you'd be like, wow. I kind of feel that way a little bit, uh, but yeah. But uh, yes, I don't know. I'm a little <laughs> resistant about even saying that, but I understand the sentiment no, behind it of of tell your feelings to God. He he can hear them, but we also see that David leaves the justice up to God. He doesn't take it into his own hands and doesn't decide what that cursing looks like, though he has some, I mean, he may want it to look a certain way, yeah. but he lets God bring about his justice in his perfect time. And that's where we have a good model for lament and imprecatory prayers and any kind of frustration is at the end of the, at the, end of the day, you trust God yeah. for his yeah. timing. It's not, I'm really mad at my enemy. Amen. Let me go fight him. It's, I'm really mad at my enemy. And God, you are the just judge. So you have to do something because I am, yeah. this is not my role. Yeah. And then we trust God's timing, and mm-hmm. it might not be ours. No, yeah. We may never see it. Um, and then Psalm 17. So we've got another Davidic psalm. Um, and just there's a real comparison and contrasting the righteous and the wicked. So pay attention to that. And so next week. Um, yeah. So in the you Old Testament, as you're reading through Exodus, God gives so many reasons for why he does what he does, whether it's the plagues or speaking to Pharaoh or even instituting the Passover. Pay attention to that. Why do we do these things? What are God's reasons behind all of these actions? Um, And then in the New Testament, you're going to start in Luke 15 and just pay attention to the audience that Jesus is talking to at this point and the, and the content of the stories. Yeah. And then uh, as, as the Israelites start heading into the desert, um, one of the ways I've heard some of these tests in the desert explained, um, uh, and it's a, a really old interpretation, but that they're the Shema, the the heart, soul, string, um, is kind of put to test uh, in the desert of the the water that's bitter and the strike of the rock. So, mm-hmm. think through those a little bit of of what what is being tested, what what part of Israel is being asked, what what sort of challenge are they uh, encountering in these uh, tests out there? Yeah, it's uh, kind of funny. Just as a little comment, like Israel wasn't just saved out of something; they also they were only halfway done when they got to, you know they also had to 
go into the promised land. Yeah, but yeah. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'm looking forward to it uh, and continuing in Luke and continuing in Exodus. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Bye. Bye.